0: Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week we start with Arthur Dove. My first guest is Deborah Bricker Balkan. She's the author of Arthur Dove, a Catalog Resume of Paintings and Things, a thorough presentation that includes Dove's assemblages. Jessie Sentivan contributed to the book. You may recall her from our program on Sage. The Dove Catalog resume includes 537 illustrations, almost all of them in color, of each Dove that Balkan was able to identify, find, photograph, and document. I've spent several nights curled up on the couch with it. It's one heck of a lot of fun. Dove includes an essay on Dove's work and its critical reception, as well as mini-essays on major works. Many of the materials and images in the book are published for the first time here. It lists for $125 via IndieBound or Amazon. We'll have links on manpodcast.com. Dub, of course, is among the most prominent American modernists of the early 20th century, a key link between the American nature tradition and abstraction. On the second segment, Celeste Brusati on Samuel Van Hoogstraten. But first, Deborah Bricker Balkan, after the break. Since 1981, Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska, has provided artists from around the world with dedicated time, space, and resources to conduct research and to create new work across conceptual, material, performative, and social practices. To date, more than 1,000 artists have participated in its international residency program. Now in its 40th year, Bemis is accepting applications for its 2022 residency program, including its Artist-in-Residence program, Sound Art and Experimental Music program, Curator-in-Residence program, and Alumni Artist-in-Residence program. Bemis offers residents unmatched technical guidance, access to interns, and an established network of resources. Participants have the opportunity to create networks, collaborate, and share their work with fellow residents, organizational partners, and the public. To learn more about studios and facilities, resources, and financial support, visit bemiscenter.org apply. American artist Lighty Churchman's imagery is wide-ranging, Echoing the sheer abundance of visual information that bombards us daily. The paintings treat equally the subjects of animals, landscapes, themes from Tibetan Buddhism, real estate estate advertisements, and remakes of works by other artists, from Henri Rousseau to Barbara Kruger. Focus, Lighty Churchman, on view at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, January 22nd through March 21st. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is collaborating with Duke Arts and Duke Health to present an unprecedented outdoor exhibition and public awareness campaign by nationally renowned artist Carrie Mae Weems. Resist COVID Take Six emphasizes the disproportionate impact of the deadly virus on the lives of communities of color through large-scale banners and window clings, billboards, posters, street signs, and more. Resist COVID Take Six has taken shape on the exterior walls and windows of the Nasher Museum and Rubinstein Arts Center At the front gate of Sarah P. Duke Gardens, and the Carpentry Shop, home of the MFA in Experimental and Documentary Arts. Resist COVID Take Six allows the Nasher Museum to present an impactful outdoor art experience safely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Later in the fall, Resist COVID Take Six will extend into the surrounding community. The Nasher Museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. The museum is available by appointment to Duke faculty and students. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Deborah Bricker Balkan, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes Podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be back.
0: As I mentioned in the introduction, this is your third major Dove project. You curated the 97 98 retrospective as well as a show on Dove and O'Keefe in 2009. Did this project teach you anything about Dove you hadn't previously learned?
1: Yes. I mean, I'm always learning about Arthur Dove through various projects. But in the retrospective, I worked primarily on Dove's early work. That is his work from about 1910, 11, until the early 1930s. And that was actually the period I also explored for the Dove O'Keefe show at the Clark Art Institute that paired Dove's painting with O'Keeffe's through the same time period. So this was the first time that I actually examined all three major phases or periods associated with Dove's work. His, his early work, his so called Geneva period, which stretches from 1933 to 38, and then his late period when he is back in Long Island and where he will work the last six years of his life.
0: Yeah, by Geneva, you mean Geneva, New York, of course. So let's dive into the Dove oeuvre a bit. And let's start, I guess, kind of in a way before the catalog resume starts. Dove starts out as an illustrator for magazines such as McClure's and Scribner's and whatnot. What do you see migrating or transitioning from that experience as an illustrator, such a common experience for American painters of the 20th century, and 19th century for that matter, into his painting?
1: Very little, actually. Dove worked primarily as an illustrator for about the first three or four years of his life. It was a fairly lucrative profession for a young graduate from Cornell University who made his way to New York, became immediately involved in the illustration community. Some of his closest contacts included William Glackens and, Slo- and John Sloan. But Dove was always tempted to. Make the leap into into painting. In fact, that was something that John Sloan encouraged, and that induced a trip that he took to France in from 1908 to 1909. And while there, Dove produced, a, you know, a rather unremarkable body of post-impressionist work. He comes back to New York with an introduction to Alfred Stieglitz. And he, for the most part, gives up working as an illustrator full-time. He'll take on part-time assignments. But there's very, very little crossover between his his illustrations and his, and his painting. And in fact, he saw them actually as two distinct bodies of work.
0: You mentioned that trip to France. One of the big discoveries for him there is Matisse and Fauvism. How did Matisse help him, if that's the right phrase, in that transition into, into painting and painting, you know, full time, as it were?
1: Well, I would say, you know, Matisse's, you know, preoccupation with color and light was something that deeply held Dove, who saw his work at some of the various salons in Paris, like the Salon d'Automne, which, you know, Dove will also participate in. So we do know that he, you know, he probably actively studied Matisse's work there. When he comes back to New York, you know, some of the kinds of residual influences that you can see from Matisse and other Faux artists is a black line or a black boundary that will appear in some of his early abstractions. But that's about it.
0: I guess one thing I noticed that he may have taken from Matisse was the compression of space how Matisse uses textiles, wallpaper, whatnot, and kind of visual rhymes with stuff in the foreground to to consolidate the front and the rear of a painting together.
1: Well, you can certainly see that in some of his early still-life paintings, like The Lobster, which was exhibited in Paris at the Salon d'Automne. But again, those kinds of influences, if indeed they were direct influences, very quickly recede from Dove's work. By 1912 or so, yes, we can see occasional evidence in pastels like a walk poplar. There's a you know, distinct black line or boundary line. But as Dove moves into you know, what we would refer to at this point in time as pure abstract painting, all of those kinds of fascinations will drop by the wayside.
0: So as we get into these next four or five years of Dove's early career, you know, from the end of the nineteen aughts into the nineteen teens, the dates of Dove's paintings are are often uncertain. And you note in the CR that that he really rarely dates his paintings, both both now and ever. You know, at the risk of maybe asking an unanswerable question, you know, why why didn't he?
1: <laughs> you know, he didn't begin keeping records of his work until he and Tor take up their collaborative diaries.
0: His wife his second wife, Helen Tor
1: his second wife, Helen Tor, yes, in 1924, and the diaries actually become a way for us to, to date work. But also, he will begin having an annual show at Alfred Stieglitz's third gallery in American Place as of the late 1920s, and we have checklists from those various exhibitions which allow us to date them the paintings pretty accurately
0: so in 1910 11-ish he makes a series of quite abstract paintings and they they run across a pretty striking almost shocking two-page spread in the book how did he get from from a painting like the lobster which is representational as representational can be to something so completely different so completely abstract so quickly
1: I think primarily through his discussions with Alfred Stieglitz, whom he becomes quite close to as soon as they meet when he returns to New York in 1909. And then, you know, he, the, the lobster will be included in a group exhibition, and then thereafter Stieglitz will assemble a one-person exhibition of Dove's work in 1912. These small abstractions were not included in that exhibition, but we do know that Stieglitz saw them because he makes much of Dove's role as the first abstract painter in the United States. But no, it it comes out of of a discussion with Stieglitz about the nature of modernism. What were the ingredients of modernism? How is American modernism distinguished from French modernism? And I think that, you know, these were issues that Diglitz was also thinking about very deeply at this moment in time. You know, we know that he passed on or, or recounted to Dove books that he was reading, like Kandinsky's Concerning the Spiritual and Art. Of course, Kandinsky was making similar kinds of pictorial breakthroughs in his work simultaneous to Dove.
0: We are definitely gonna to get to Kandinsky in a moment. One of the things that really jumped out to me with clarity I'd never had before about Dove was the Kandinsky relationship. This book I, it, you just as you as you page through it and read through it, it it bursts forth. But before we get to Kandinsky, it's in like nineteen ten or eleven ish that America becomes an important subject for Dove. Is is that Stieglitz too or are there other reasons?
1: I think it's absolutely Stiglitz. You know, is Stiglitz. Is beginning to think the mission of his 291 gallery, that is the photo succession gallery that's named for its address at 291 Fifth Avenue. He is thinking again very, very deeply about the nature of American art, how it again is differentiated from what is happening in Europe. And eventually he will give up on exhibiting photography, with the exception of Paul Strand, and will focus almost exclusively. Exclusively on American artists. And that will become his mission actually when he will resurface as a dealer in the mid 1920s. In
0: 1911, Dove makes three paintings titled Nature Symbolized Numbers One, Two, and Three. At least one of them is a representation of factories as being nature, air quotes nature, which is interesting for a lot of reasons, reasons having to do both with the past and the 19th century and reasons having to do with precisionism, which these paintings are a decade ahead of. What do we know about Dove's association of these paintings with with nature, the word nature, the place nature, how he thought through nature?
1: Well, when Dove comes back from Paris in 1909, he spends a two-week period in Geneva, New York, where he grows up as a child, camping in the environs of, of Geneva and he's there largely to think about what he gleaned from his experience in France. And most of the work that he did produce in France was landscape-based, with the exception of a handful of still life paintings. So when he's in Geneva, he's thinking very, very deeply about the role of nature vis-à-vis landscape painting. And I think from that experience alone, you know, nature will become the primary and ongoing subject matter of his work.
0: The way he presents factories in *Nature Symbolized*, number one, which is a painting in a private collection in Florida, it's just completely fascinating to me. It's 1911. We will see Precisionists like Sheeler in the 1930s, and Sheeler and Strand in *Manhattan*, their their 1921 film address both the idea of factories as nature and factories as supplanting emersonian landscape as the core of the american thing the core of the american cultural thing but but here is dove blending the industrial and emersonian nature you know way before that 10 20 years before that and he moves through it pretty quickly he doesn't stick around factories for long. I mean, so it's, it's it's fascinating to me that artists will come back to it. But why does he pick it up and then leave it be?
1: Well, he will resume looking at the industrial landscape in the late 1920s. And there are a number of images that he did of gas tanks, silver tanks and moon being probably one of the foremost pieces. And then throughout the decade of the 20s, you know, as many artists are thinking about the whole new phenomenon of regionalist painting, I mean, Dove will paint silos and other industrial components, but they're always integrated and immersed within nature. They're always tied to a natural element like the moon or the sun.
0: You know, while, while you mentioned Silver Tanks and Moon, which is from 1930 and which is at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, it is one of a number of paintings to which you devoted an entire page. How did you pick the paintings that you chose to extra spotlight and write a few extra paragraphs on?
1: Well, first of all, you know, when I was thinking about the whole format of the catalog resume, which is a chronological format that is fixed, that you have to abide by, I thought, how can I enliven, you know, this rigid format? And one way was to isolate 25 or so paintings that I think of as Dove's monuments and to devote short essays to each of them.
0: So, s- Starting in about 1914-ish, Dove makes a series of abstractions, you know, air quotes, abstractions. And in your lead essay, the essay that kicks off the the cat res, you write, quote, their dating remains approximate in the absence of archival documentation while begging the question, dum-dum-dum-dum, had Dove landed in abstract territory before artists such as Kandinsky? How did you come to that question, and how did you maybe come to consider its answer?
1: Well, you know, a lot of scholars before me have linked Dove to Kandinsky, have noted that, you know, Dove and Kandinsky were working, you know, neck and neck as they inched towards outright or pure abstraction in their work. You know, for me, it's an interesting question, but it's a question that I've never been able to solve. You know, in the absence of archival evidence, you know, it's something also a lot of, that a lot of American art historians have made. Uh, Light of, but certainly European art historians are not thinking about um, connections between Dove and Kandinsky, which I also find to be fascinating. You know, in large part because figures like like Dove and other painters associated with Alfred Stieglitz, be they O'Keefe, be they Marin, Hartley, or others, you know, are figures who until the mid century were for the most part overshadowed by European developments. It probably accounts for the reason why there has never been a one-person exhibition of Arthur Dove's work abroad. There have been a number of O'Keeffe shows, and there has been there have been two Hartley shows, but there has never been a focused take on Dove's work alone abroad.
0: Let's let's stick with nature for a moment because nature is important to Dove, you know, in 1909 and 1910, and it stays important all all the way through. Are there subjects within nature that interest him most?
1: Well, he's primarily drawn to the ephemeral components of nature, that is to you know, the diurnal rhythms of the sun and the moon, to the play of wind on a field of grass, to rain, to snowstorms. Those transient subjects stick with him.
0: One of the ways he explores nature is in a series of works that, may or may not have any paint in or on them whatsoever. Paintings that include things like collaged paper and fabric and all kinds of stuff. Where do those works come from?
1: Well, there are a number of different stories that um, account for the assemblages or the collages or the things as, as he referred to these 24 pieces that he produces between 1924 and 1929. O'Keeffe believes it was economic, that he didn't have the, the means to purchase, you know, paint and canvas, so that he would, you know, pick up bits of bark or tree limbs and fashion them into a collage or thing like Rain of 1924, which is one of the first collages that he produces, or he would pick up things at the dime store, which also becomes a subject of another assemblage called Tencent Store. And there might be something to that explanation because there, you know, there are not as many paintings produced at least at the outset in 1924. And during this period of time, even though Dove is working as a part-time illustrator, that market is drying up. And by 1929, you know, a major year in many reasons, you know, the onset of the depression. Photography comes to supplant illustration in mass media publications, and Dove doesn't have a part-time job anymore.
0: Let's talk about Tencent Store for a moment. I, one of the most striking of these works that aren't necessarily or only or mostly are not paintings. Well, first, what is it made out of, if you will? Let's start there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, well, it is made out of this bouquet of flowers, artificial flowers that he would have acquired at the ten cent store, and combined with natural elements such as a fern that he would have picked up somewhere, somewhere on his daily walks near Huntington, Long Island, which is where he was based at this point in time.
0: So, ten cent store is for me a really sly winking, smirking nod at botany and particularly at 19th century America's fascination with with botany and plants. I mean, you can't read John Muir or any of the other great kind of amateur naturalists of the 19th century without reading them, name-checking every plant species they can, only in this dove, they are artificial flowers. Do you think he was aware of or interested in either botany or the way in which artists had engaged with it in the decades before him?
1: Well, you know, there is some kind of scientific component to Dove's work. I mean, being a naturalist and spending a great deal of time, you know, outdoors, he was, you know, very interested in the way in which you know nature was made up of various different colors or components of light. So his analysis of nature extended that far. When you read his diaries, it's interesting too because They're rather conceptual in format in that he will begin by recording the temperature, the barometric pressure. He'll note the different phases of the moon. And all of that will extend, you know, some of the reading that he will be doing on weather formations and patterns and whatever. I don't know specifically, though, that he was reading 19th century texts.
0: So there are lots of Dove paintings that feature flower-like forms or, or leaves, and, and a zillion that feature the branches of trees. But one of these 24 primarily not-painted works, if you will, that references flowers and botany in just the most extraordinary way is a work called Grandmother from 1925. What is it built from, and what do you think Dove is saying with it?
1: Well, again, it's made up of a needlepoint piece.
0: Like literally needlepoint.
1: <laughs> literally needlepoint, yes. Where where he acquired this piece of needlepoint, I don't know. I, I'm not sure, that, you know, it, it certainly didn't come from Helen Tor's hand. You know, Tor was a seamstress. In fact, one of these collages is actually an homage to her role as a seamstress. But it, again, it, it combines a number of... You know, found objects, pressed flowers, leaves, ferns, a passage from the Bible, along with this needlepoint.
0: Appreciating that I'm inclined to find Emerson in all things. <laughs> this strikes me as—I mean—and and I think Dove engages with Emerson quite 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 a bit across the oeuvre, at least before the 19—you know—at least before his last phase. But this strikes me as a particularly transcendentalism addressing piece. Flowers, nature the Bible one on top of the other one one pointing to the other all binding together the idea that that uh, an individual experience of God can be found in nature and nature can be you know and, and that God and nature reflect each other as they they do in the literal construction of this piece
1: right well I, I think that Dove you know certainly digested those 19th century Metaphysical preoccupations. He would describe them, however, in different terms. I mean, as as a modernist, um, he's he's thinking, you know, about stretching, you know, the known languages or horizons of art. And there is a distinct metaphysical component, however, that I think runs through almost every work that he produces. You know, he did he did hope that his, you know, his work would be read for its possibility to induce transcendent experience.
0: There has been a whole lot written about Kandinsky and, and sound. And one of the things that I think thunders forth from this book, from this cat res, is just how many ways Dove finds of addressing sound across so long a period of time. What about Sound got Dove interested in it, and why did he think about beginning to air quotes translate sound into paintings?
1: Well, you know, Dove does read concerning the spiritual and art by by Kandinsky. Uh, Dove we also know paints as of the early 1920s to music. He acquires a phonograph in the early 1920s, and later on, later on in the decade, a radio. His diaries are filled with mention of the various composers that he was drawn to, like Irving Berlin, primarily jazz musicians, Berlin and Gershwin, although we know that he also listens to um, Stravinsky and other classical modernist composers. There's very vivid descriptions of, of those records in the diaries. And then I think he's also, you know, attracted to the various sounds of nature. I mean, if you look at a painting from 1929, like Foghorns, you know, there is a piece, you know, that is deeply preoccupied with sound and its abstract reverberations across a landscape.
0: I'm glad you brought up Foghorns. It is one of the most, I've just kind of it was spectacular from out of the clear blue nowhere paintings in the uber it's one of the it's one of several sound paintings to which you, you you devoted a whole kind of monument page what do we know or what do you think about how dove chose to represent the sound the horns make well i have an image of the painting on manpodcast.com but it's the painting does look like foghorns kind of ought to look i think <laughs>
1: Yeah, it does. These vibrating sounds as they're hovering over a body of water and piercing through cloud formations, low lying cloud formations. You know, again, I think that it's just an extension of him looking at, you know, every transient, ephemeral, fugitive element in nature and substantiating those properties through abstract compositions.
0: You mentioned composers a moment ago, composers like Irving Berlin and George Gershwin. There are paintings that Dove made in which the names of those composers are used if that's the right phrase. Is is that Dove assigning and linking specific paintings to specific composers, or is that kind of emerged in the decades since?
1: No, those were titles that, that Dove gave to to paintings, like Gershwin's "I'll Build a Stairway to Paradise," "Rhapsody in Blue," "Rhapsody in Blue" number two. All of those titles we know that Dove gave to these pieces. Sometimes there are there, there are variations that you'll find in the checklists that Stieglitz printed for the exhibitions that they appear in. We have attempted to be as faithful to the titles that appear in diaries as possible, and we will note variations to titles where we have where we have found them.
0: That's what got me wondering. I mean, because that's one of the really helpful features of the book is that, you know, in, in, in books about 19th century American art, virtually all of the titles have been assessed by the field and the field has moved on from the titles under which painters may have exhibited those paintings, which has resulted in a lot of loss of meaning and reference. And here in this book it's it's kind of an extra layer of history that's presented with the paintings that I think really helps a lot. While we're in 1929, one of Dove's absolute masterpieces is a, is a painting called Red Tree and Sun. It is in the collection of Fisk University and Crystal Bridges in, um, in Arkansas. We'll have an image on, on manpodcast.com, but it seems to me likely to be one of the picture's Dove painted that would have, could have most informed abstract expressionists, specifically Newman and Clifford Still. Did you find yourself in putting this project together, especially the paintings you hadn't worked on before, kind of maybe from just after this point forward, thinking about ways in which Dove might have been useful to Abexers?
1: You know, it was something that I thought about a great deal, because as I Embarked on my research, you know, I was very interested in the reception to Dove's work after his death in 1946 and you know 1946 is also a major year in that it was the, it was the year that the term abstract expressionism was floated by Robert Coates who was the art critic for the New Yorker it wasn't a term or a name that stuck until the late 1950s early 1960s but still i was really interested in how many of those figures associated with that term would have looked at doves Would they have gone to Alfred Stieglitz's American Place Gallery and seen Dove's annual exhibitions? And, you know, occasionally you will find references to, you know, to Dove made by some of these figures, but it was fascinating to me that, you know, Alfred Barr, the former director of the Museum of Modern Art, who never devoted a show to Dove's work, in the early 1950s, you know, it has this revelation as he's writing about abstract expressionist work or the New York School, that there are, yes, there are ties and that Dove was this phenomenal precursor to the mid-century.
0: So is we, as we kind of move into maybe the last 15 or, or 20 years of, of Dove's career, is he doing new things and having new interests as much as he had in the in the first half of his career or is he more refining and building upon
1: I think both I mean I think that he is you know simultaneously mining the early abstract implications of his work through various canvases like Silver Sun of, of 1929 as well as Sunrise Northport Harbor you know of the same year alongside of producing work that still has you know, figurative elements in it, you know, very distinct references to the sun and the moon in particular. But as you inch into the decade of the 30s, these dual strains will remain evident in his work. There will be, again, these occasional references to known entities like a brickyard or a barge
0: Lots of barges, lots of tugboats.
1: Yes, or a coal carrier. But then you'll get you'll land upon a painting like Sandbarge of nineteen thirty, which is, you know, thoroughly abstract. And by the end of the decade of the thirties, those abstract elements will completely win out in Dove's work. And as of nineteen forty, he is producing paintings that are not based on observation of nature.
0: I'm glad you mentioned the way he kind of goes back and forth, if you will, between the abstract and not. I mean, there's a really weird painting called Seagull from 1933, in which the Seagull could not be more representational. But everything else in the painting is completely abstract. And it seems that there's this period where he's kind of willing to go back and forth. And then by the time we get into the 1940s, he's fully committed to non-representation. Um, what do we know or what do you think about the extent that was a, a push-me-pull-you within his own his own mind?
1: Well, I think a number of pressures are being brought to bear, especially in 1933 when we look at a painting like Seagull. You know, again, regionalism has asserted itself as a movement by this point in time, and not only has it asserted itself, but by the mid-1930s, it will become the ascendant movement in the United States, and Dove is very consciously thinking about the ascendancy of an artist like Thomas Hart Benton who was going to be on the cover of Life magazine in 1934 Time magazine rather in 1934 you know a first for an American artist so i think that he's pondering this whole phenomenon of regionalism and, you know, wondering if, you know, there are strains in his work that could be interpreted as regionalist or if he should even be competing with that particular movement. But by 1935, he's thoroughly resolved about his position on regionalist painting. We also find the same in O'Keeffe during this time. You know, when she leaves New York in 1929 to go to New Mexico, she, for the most part, does become a regionalist painter. You know, she paints skulls and maces and, you know, all kinds of subjects that can be linked to aspects of regionalist painting.
0: Of course, in a way, American painting has always been regionalist, um, at least in the 19th century. I mean, not to go down a rabbit hole, but, you know, there was no such thing as the Hudson River School. And to the extent that that was a group of painters in a building at one point, they were at least as interested in the White Mountains as they were in anything near the Hudson. And, you know, what's more regional than the White Mountains, right? Or, or the Catskills, for that matter. All of which is stuff that Dove probably had the opportunity to notice and, and think about. You know, it's it's also interesting to me that in these same years, these you know, the kind of last decade plus of his career, as he's doing this push-me-pull-you between abstraction and representation, as he's interested in regionalism and his relationship to it or not, He's fascinated by by the sun and the moon, which you mentioned in passing a moment ago, and which I didn't dwell on when maybe I should have. At, At the risk of asking a kind of cosmic question, what about the sun and the moon interested him? And was some of his interest in them that he could be so free in how he represented them?
1: If you look at the series like the Sunrise series of 1936, three paintings, well, there's a fourth that appears a little later on. This is a magisterial series of paintings, and it, in some ways it Dove's him to nature. We can tie it to aspects of his biography of Dove getting up very early every morning to watch the sunrise, to capture the sunrise and paint. He was deeply, deeply drawn to, you know, the metaphysical implications of a painting, a fleeting orb like the sun, and then for these transcendent associations, you know, to be brought to this body of work. But there's also another layer to it, too. I mean, these are embodied in abstractions, and there is an obvious phallic, you know, component to these pieces.
0: There is, including in, in Sunrise One, which also, I, I can't imagine the dove was looking at Munch, but there's kind of a Munchian reference, too, in terms of sunrise and reflection and the body.
1: So he's bridging, I think, both the, the metaphysical and the physical in these pieces.
0: So I want to close with with two kind of big picture questions. One, I, I think, totally fair, and one, I think, totally unfair. <laughs> the fair question is, this book is an extraordinary resource. Catalog resumes quite often make new investigations and new exhibitions and new research possible. What are some of the projects you hope come out of this one?
1: Well, I hope that there would be a deep reassessment of the work of Arthur Dove. You know, there has not been a retrospective exhibition of Dove's work since the late 90s, the last one that I worked on. And I'm seeing Dove sort of drop off the radar. And I I hope that this book, you know, will resituate him on the Olympian heights of, of art history. I think that that's where he deserves to be placed.
0: You know, one of the ways this, this book worked on me is situated Dove in the Middle. You know, I, I understood and saw things about his relationship to the 19th century I hadn't thought enough about. And then as probably one or two of my questions have indicated, I've thought about him in terms of the ensuing generation, uh, generations, really, you know, precisionism through AbEx more, more than I had before. My unfair question is, at the end of this project, did you end up with a particular favorite Dove or two.
1: You know, I guess my favorites are revealed in terms of the full-page illustrations <laughs> and the monuments that I have isolated.
0: Yeah, I figured that was that was one of the <laughs> Genesis, Genesis, <laughs> Genesis, whatever the word is of that of, 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 of how those those came to be. It's Deborah Bricker Balkan, thanks so much.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: Explore an ancient trading center in Return to Palmyra, a new online exhibition from Getty. Discover rare photos and etchings of the city, including famous ruins that no longer exist, and learn how Palmyra has transformed over time. Read an interview with Palmyra's former director of antiquities and museums, Walid Khaled al-Sad, who grew up in this famous Syrian desert oasis, where he can trace his lineage back five generations. Dive into Palmyra's history and culture from the prehistoric to modern period, with art historian Joan Aruz. Return to Palmyra is a dual language exhibition presented in both English and Arabic. Learn more and start exploring at getty.edu palmyra. Hi everyone. I want to tell you about a free new app called Bloomberg Connects. It lets you access museums, galleries, and cultural spaces around the world, anytime, anywhere. The app doesn't address just a single institution or one exhibition, but instead takes a portfolio approach, by offering access to many different cultural institutions through a single download. On Bloomberg Connects, you can discover new cultural offerings, including some with which you might not be as familiar, creating exciting opportunities for you to find new ideas that address your interests across geographically disparate institutions. Bloomberg Connects currently has guides available for many institutions in New York and London, including The Line, London's first dedicated public art walk. Bloomberg Connects features artists such as Antony Gormley, Karsten Holler, Anish Kapoor, and Abigail Fallis providing audio introductions to their work. Learn how to visit and more on Bloomberg Connects. Bloomberg Connects was created by Bloomberg Philanthropies to make arts and culture accessible to more people around the world. Download Bloomberg Connects today to access digital guides, to hear from artists, curators, and experts, and to get the stories behind exhibitions. You can download Bloomberg Connects on the Apple app and Google Play stores and from app.bloombergconnects.org slash modernartnotes. In the book Evicted, Matthew Desmond argues that eviction and homelessness are not only results of poverty, but may also cause it. To contribute to better understanding the close relationship between residential instability and poverty, the exhibition Barriers and Disparities, Housing in America at Sheldon Museum of Art explores selected moments in the history of inequitable access to housing in the United States. Works by Ansel Adams, John Biggers, Gertrude Kasebier. Gordon Parks, Lewis B. Sloan, and Paul Strand are featured for their potency in helping us to consider how housing can pose larger questions about systemic injustices in our society. For virtual galleries, learning guides, and information about online events, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. Welcome back. Next up, Celeste Brussati joins me to discuss... Samuel van Hoogstraten's Introduction to the Academy of Painting, or The Visible World, a new edited volume on Hoogstraten's landmark discourse on painting, his experience in Rembrandt's studio, and his engagements with optics, perspective, and philosophy. Brusati edited the volume, Jaap Jacobs translated Hoogstraten's text. Brusati is a professor emerita of art and art history at the University of Michigan. The book was published by Getty Publications. It lists for about $75 via the Getty. Or via Indie Bounder Amazon. We'll have links on manpodcast.com. Celeste Brussani, welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast.
2: Thanks. It's great to be here.
0: Who was Samuel Van Hoogstraten? Which is which is to say what grounded his writing? What prepared him to have hundreds upon hundreds of pages to say about both painting and Dutch intellectual life?
2: A complicated character, and I would say, in in many respects, not a typical Dutch artist. He was someone who came from a family of people who believed in education, and he got that. And when, at the age of 12, his father died, he found himself wanting to continue what he started under his father's tutelage, which was painting. So he comes from a family of merchants, lives in a historically very interesting city that was a great center of trade from the Burgundian period, from the late Middle Ages on, and has an illustrious history to which he is connected. But I digress. He had both a training in the usual apprenticeship style of other artisans with his father, who had been a silversmith and then switched to painting. And then when his father dies, he is shepherded by his family into another career, but he doesn't want to go there. They educate him and probably he did a stint maybe at the Latin school. We don't have records for that, but it's likely and certainly he learned to read and write French. So it seems that this is not the usual route for artists who learned in the usual artisanal fashion when he finally persuades his family to let him continue with painting they send him on to rembrandt in amsterdam which is also an extraordinary circumstance for somebody not that many young men in that moment had the opportunity to have firsthand contact with that world and it was an unusual training in that it wasn't just learning how to do the basics and then moving on, but it was much more of an academy in the sense that artists were coming to Rembrandt after they had learned and were ready for a kind of finishing in the art. And so not only professional artists were training with Rembrandt, but also cultured young men who wanted to further their skills in drawing and so forth. So this was extremely formative, and he does talk about his conversations in the studio with other artists and the ways in which they were taught. So from the get-go, this is a young man who has both literary And artistic ambitions. So he begins writing poetry and occasional verse, even broadsheets, when he's in his 20s. He's just spent five years in Rembrandt's studio and he's learned there a great deal about painting, but also about marketing. Rembrandt was unusual in kind of bucking the patronage system and trying to find ways for the artist to be much more determinative of the value of art in a very competitive market. So I would say that uh, van Hoekstraaten learned as much about painting as a business as he did about painting as an art when he was a student in Rembrandt's studio. And he seems to have stayed longer than some and perhaps We think he served as a kind of mentor or senior uh, member of the studio, which produced Rembrandt's students were making work in the manner of Rembrandt and often portraying themselves in ways that were quite similar to the work produced by Rembrandt himself. So after that, he's ready to go back to Dordrecht, which is his natal home, and he sets up his own studio, but only for a short time. He wants to see the world. He wants to see the art that is awaiting him in Italy and elsewhere, so he sets out for a journey of five years, and this is not the first time. I think what's interesting about Hoogstraten is that He is a Dutch artist who traveled much more and much more widely than the vast majority of Dutch painters. So he spends five years in Italy and in the Holy Roman Empire, so the German lands. And he also later, 10 years later, will spend five more years in London. So he has a very distinctive perspective as somebody who's inside this remarkable period of of innovation and just the flourishing of painting in the Netherlands. He's an insider, but he's also an outsider. So he can see from outside what's going on in the Netherlands. And he has the experience of what painters are doing elsewhere in Europe. So that makes him a kind of interesting commentator. He's coming from an unusual perspective. And... Not all painters, by no means all, had the literary skills to put pen to paper and write a book like this. Most artists were literate, to be sure, but they were not literarily inclined. And he put his hand to every genre of writing that he could. He seems to be the kind of person who, in order to understand something, had to make it. So if he wants to understand you know, how to write historical drama, he'll just write one. And he did that and a good many other things. He emulated various kinds of writing in order, I think, to not only demonstrate his own skill, but also that was a way to, to learn it, to get to understand something, to get inside of it.
0: And and he's writing this book at the very end of his life, or at least publishing it at, at the very end of his life. So he's had all these years to travel, to experience, to paint, to have a correspondence with people in natural philosophy, what we would now call science, people engaged with politics and literature and more. And so turning a little bit more toward the visible world, toward the book he writes, let's let's start with the structure of the book. He organizes it in nine chapters, I think you could say, around addresses of or maybe to the nine muses why does he organize it that way what does that allow him to do
2: it's an interesting thing because as you say it's a retrospective project right he he's putting everything together in the last years of his life but presumably he's been reading toward this all of his life, keeping notes. I'm sure it would be fabulous if one you know, discovered a commonplace book, but this is the kind of writing that comes out of that. So this is a collation of material that he's read and thought about over a period of time while actually making. Now, the the reason for the, the structure is twofold. He has a very ambitious plan, one, aspect of it is to provide his colleagues and aspiring painters with a program of instruction, a set of things that one needs to know in order to paint well and knowledgeably. Knowledgeably is important, so he's thinking about painting as both an art but also a form of knowledge and what better patrons for that than than the nine muses. So the encyclopedic academic tradition is the framework then that he's using for collating all of this material. So the through line is this sequential program of instruction led by the muses that, you know, in his conceit, take the pupil by the hand and lead him through the various things there are to be learned. But the other thing he's doing is providing a description of everything there is to know about art so it's it's a kind of collation it's a collection it's a compendium it's a description and a program and that's a way of acknowledging that painting is something that is significant because it encompasses everything that you can know so not just what you can see this visible world of the title is the full range of things that can be visualized as well as what you actually see. So it's kind of the visible world is what links the mind and the eye
0: to one another. Painting is a science for depicting all the ideas.
2: That's exactly it. His definition (laughs) of painting is a science of wetenskap, which is... A form of knowledge for depicting all the ideas that the visible world can yield. And ideas, denkbeelden in Dutch, so thought images, thought pictures, is literally what idea or concept is. And so he's kind of you know, trying to articulate, and this I find to be one of the most interesting and important bits of, of the book, a kind of visual epistemology, right, where everything knowable is coincident with everything that can be envisioned in the mind.
0: Hoagstraten makes much of the relationship between nature and painting. Now, if you are a British, if you are an art historian of British art, you think that kind of starts with Ruskin. If you were an art historian of American art, you maybe also point to Ruskin or you point to Durand or you point point to Cole, and if you're me, you point to Emerson. but as we read Hoagstraten here, we see that the questions around the relationship between the natural world and nature and what a painter does go back a lot farther than that
2: <laughs> yes we could we could take that back to antiquity <laughs> and, and and indeed, I think what what means by by nature is not you know something akin to what you see in a landscape
0: right true, true of emerson too of course
2: yeah and 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 so so nature is a kind of you know can be a stand in for everything from god to whatever there is in the material world that we need to live with so it it's 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 a very big thing but what he hones in on where art and nature come together, you might say, are a couple of things. One is that nature, and this is so apt for the art, nature is an artist, right? Nature produces images through reflection and refraction and natural processes so one of the things that the artist is imitating is nature's own way of making of creating variety species, speciation you know this this kind of natural process is, is what what the artist is modeling. His practice on I mean, or, or at least trying in some ways to to capture that you know quite characteristic of i think many forms of 17th century art and literature for art and nature to become unfolded into one another they're not necessarily in opposition it's the artifice of nature that the artist wants to wants to get a hold of and that's very interesting especially when you look at You know, what we think of, you know, in modern terms as realism, it's not a matter of some kind of direct mirroring of nature, but sort of mirroring as such that comes to play. And so when you look at a a beautifully painted, I don't know, satin skirt in the work of Ter Bork, you know it's a painting. You don't think it's satin but you can't believe it's a painting, right? Because the look of the satin has been so marvelously simulated. That's a matter of artifice. It's not a matter of transcription. You can only get satin to look satin-like by, by a trick, by a technique. And it's not direct transcription, right? It's some kind of mediated process. And and Hochstratten certainly gets that. I think the best example for my my money is when he talks about the camera obscura, which a lot of modern scholarship, especially on Vermeer, has presumed that what artists were trying to do was faithfully copy and produce an an exact, a, a realistic image in modern terms. But But Hoogstraten doesn't talk about the camera obscura in that way at all. He sees it as a wonderful experiment that demonstrates how the process by which the eye sees and produces an image that is a natural artifice. Nature is producing an image, but the image that's produced is one that that actually uh, transforms what you're able to see. It allows you to see relations of tone that with the naked eye are, are difficult to discern because there's a lot of background noise. And the camera of Scura takes away the background noise and just gives you this kind of hovering, glowing image that shows you how colors modulate in nature and how you create an image by setting different Kinds of light and color and tone into an interplay with one another. So it's it's really about style. It's really about convention, not about realism at all.
0: Yeah, one of the one of the really fun parts of reading your essay and reading Hogstraten is that he you know he's not writing a how-to manual. He's writing about the world. And the point of commonality he expects to have with the reader is that the reader gives a darn about painting. And I think that example, especially in your essay, gets at that in a really neat way. I mean, there are a lot of—I kept thinking as I read through the book in your essay is that a lot of what Hoogstraten writes about stays contemporary 100 years later, 200 years later, now— so we talked about nature a little bit and how that remained contemporary for some time. For Hoogstraten, it was entertaining that nature was a homograph, just as it would be for Emerson. But Hoogstraten was also globally informed in a way that seems very 21st century. I mean, he's Europe-oriented, don't get me wrong. But you know he, he indicates, as he's estimating and considering the history of painting, he acknowledges that he's aware that there were great painters in Japan and China centuries before him.
2: That is part of this very capacious notion of describing painting. He's trying to find every, everything he reads. You can tell he has checked off and pulled out any reference to painting or image making. And I think in that he's, he, he's done a lot of research in all kinds of different publications. So not just works on art per se, but if there's a religious treatise, if there's a travel guide or journal, he's looking at it to see what do they say about painting, among other things. But, but that is one of, and he pulls all those things out from these texts to tell us what he knows about painting. And I think actually one of the understudied and most interesting and novel bits in this book is a digression that starts the uh, seventh book, which is on light and shadow and everything optical. And he, before he gets into the optical stuff, he uses an optical metaphor to digress on the origins and history and progress of painting, how it moved in and out of the light over the centuries. And this is a history of painting its vicissitudes, the fortunes of the image over time. It's kind of modeled on a world history where he's looking at what happens when religion meets painting, meets images. So, it's told from the vantage point of religious proscriptions and religious enthusiasms, you might say, for and uses for images. And this is, of course, really fascinating coming post Reformation in a time when, you know, the proper uses of images and whether or not, you know, what constitutes an idolatrous image and what's an appropriate and permissible image. This is all very much of the moment, but he, he gives it a, a history. And no one did that, as far as I am aware, in any writing on painting. There were histories that were corporate biographies, like Vasari's most famous one and and von Mander after him. They wrote artists' lives and framed those, you know, biographies as a history. But this is not about individual artists. This is about power structures that enable and disable art to flourish. And it's the longest single, you know, subchapter in the book.
0: You know, speaking of chapter seven, it's a great example of how Hoogstraten starts each chapter with an etching, you know, you mentioned light a moment ago. What is the etching that opens book seven? And if you get as big a kick out of this etching as I do, what what do you enjoy about it? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, this is, uh, you know, the, the muse of the seventh book is Melpomene. She's the tragic muse. And she is, I have to preface this by saying that these muses have been decked out and repurposed by Hoogstrat. And this is, these are not only, you know standard attributes, but he's made them suit his project to a T. So he's he's really transformed them. And so she's wearing.
0: He's made them Dutch too. I mean, they look they all look Dutch.
2: They're definitely not classical figures, I would say. <laughs> and this one's you know she's wearing the uh, the booties, the tragic boots that the tragedian declaims. Uh, wears while declaiming. And then she's got an an outfit, a kind of dress that's uh, studded with eyes, a pattern. It's kind of like a paisley pattern with eyes in it. And then she is crowned by a little, you know, halo, the center of which is eyes, 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 eyes. And she holds a burning glass through which she basically determines fortune's steps as that burning glass turns the world into night and day and so forth so there are all these all these great things and and then uh, Vulcan is down in his forge forging away and the artist so we have a kind of interesting scenario around the figure who's centrally placed there is an architectural construct which gives us through views into a kind of cavernous space where Vulcan's at work. And then up above, there is a young artist being awarded a medallion and chain, kind of like he got when he went and presented his work to the Holy Roman Emperor in Vienna as a young man at age 24. So then you're sort of rising up to the to the heavens, through the glories of your work. So there's a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff going on in there. But he had to invent, he had to invent all this. This partly is described in a verse. So all of these etchings that he made to uh, begin each of the books are accompanied by verses that describe the content of the book and then the subject of the print and this is completely, it's all him. In other words, this is a project in which he's also involved in demonstrating his skills as an artist, sorry, an inventor of poetry and of emblematic configurations of
0: words and and images. So, so Hoogstraten publishes the book, End of His Life. How does it live in the decades thereafter? What what influences does it have?
2: I hate to disappoint you, but it doesn't seem to me to have been a terribly influential text. I think the importance of it historically is what he made of his, his life and times in it. But it wasn't anything at all like Carl von Manders' Schilder book of sixteen oh four, which was the first vernacular sustained treatment of painting that was read by everybody in the 17th century. So, van Mander's giving them language, and without van Mander, there would be no van Hoogstraten. I am quite certain, or not this van Hoogstraten. So, I think van Mander's writing really did have an impact on painters in the 17th century. Von Hoogstraten coming at the end of it does not have a commensurate influence on painters during the 18th century and beyond. I think he had a small output, you know, his brother was the publisher and we think there were maybe 500 copies and, you know, I don't know for how long, you know, they were still making copies to order. But it did end up making its way into some of the drawing academies that were established in various Dutch cities, especially in Middleburg, where there was a very active unit that awarded prizes to draftsmen. Every year, and one of the prizes they uh, awarded were copies of von Hoogstraten and other writers in these beautiful uh, leather bindings. So we know that you know he made his way into the drawing academies in that way. But as far as you know, people who were reading him, he may have looked old-fashioned to some because of that elaborate encyclopedic framework in which he visually couched the book but you know I, I i don't think that he really becomes important until we get to the 20th century and then people are desperate for texts and they're looking to find the authoritative voice on what was going on and so uh, people start dipping into hoggstadn but initially when von Schlosser's big compendium on art literature comes out he just dismisses it he says oh this is a pastiche of earlier stuff very boring not interesting don't bother but then because people were interested in what he had to say about Rembrandt they started looking at him as a contemporary interlocutor who could tell you something you know firsthand and then other topics you know emblems and realism and all kinds of things optical and perspectival questions led people to the book but they dipped in you know very selectively and curiously because of the interest in Rembrandt they found the the two most Lengthy and they aren't very long commentaries on specific works of art, which were Rembrandt's Night Watch and his preaching of John the Baptist. those were aberrations in the book because there are not many works of art that he mentions more than a sentence about in passing. Hostraden
0: particularly notices a couple of dogs,
2: yeah the um the <laughs> humping dogs, and you know I've thought about that a lot because. People say, oh, you know, he's a classicist who's really casting aspersions on Rembrandt, the vulgar painter. Well, yes, but, you know, I'm imagining him in front of a room full of, you know, teenage boys saying, you know, okay, don't go there. That's not what you should be imitating, Right. <laughs> it's natural yes but it doesn't belong here and it makes you look stupid and don't do that and then of course he has to pun he has to make a pun after that and he says well if you you know if you put dogs in people are going to think that this is a diogenes because you know he was referred to as the dogish cynic diogenes and and not john the baptist so he shows how you know you can use these little pictorial puns and emblematic devices to signal something but just you know putting the dogs in humping is not something to be you know done lightly there are plenty of other dogs in that picture that he doesn't comment on but
0: (laughs) artists have had fun making use of those punny references at least ever since Celeste Brusati, thanks so much.
2: Oh, it was a total pleasure. Thank you.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.